This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Excited to share this episode with you. I'm a huge fan of this week's guest, Karina Longworth, and her now pretty much iconic podcast, You Must Remember This. It will probably come as no surprise to you, my longtime listeners, that I was that kid with Lauren Bacall's memoir under my arm. And I once jumped out of my mom's car at a red light because Walter Matthau was in the car next to us, and I just needed to say hi or tell him that I loved his work or something. Hollywood stories were my escape. So when Karina Longworth's show began in 2014, it was a slice of heaven for me. Longworth, the host and creator of You Must Remember This, explores, and I quote, secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Her narration, her passion, and most importantly, her immense research is infectious and highly entertaining. Her archive is huge, too large to mention, but for example, seasons like Dead Blondes with episodes on Marilyn Monroe and Grace Kelly, and Charles Manson's Hollywood, a season that by many is considered to be one of the best and most comprehensive deep dives into Manson and the people around him. She's also written a fascinating book about Howard Hughes called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Longworth has a Master of Arts in Cinema Studies. She's a former chief critic at LA Weekly and is married to Star Wars and Knives Out director Ryan Johnson. I was thrilled to read about her new season of the podcast, about a woman who should not need an introduction, but for many probably does. The season is about Polly Platt, and it's called Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Now, Polly Platt was a creative force behind so many films of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. She was Oscar-nominated for her production design on Terms of Endearment. She wrote the controversial Pretty Baby and produced movies like Broadcast News, The War of the Roses, Bottle Rocket, and Say Anything. It was Platt who suggested to James L. Brooks that he meet with Matt Groening and that Brooks produce an animated TV series of one of his characters. That would become The Simpsons. But most probably know Polly Platt because of her marriage to and collaboration with Peter Bogdanovich, who had an affair with Sybil Shepherd while shooting their iconic film The Last Picture Show. This season, Karina Longworth has once again found a theme that feels so relevant, and with her research, she brings the best and often forgotten Hollywood stories to life. In our interview, we talk about Polly Platt's story and the unfinished memoir that Longworth bases the season on, why Bogdanovich has not given Polly Platt credit where credit is due, the importance of the last picture show in American film. We also talk about Karina Longworth's passion and where it comes from, how burning out put her on the journey towards You Must Remember This. We talk about her research process and how she finds that untapped info about the biggest stars, and that reporting on Hollywood and the industry really is broken, and much more. Oh, and why she hopes many of us will soon be wearing Polly Platt t-shirts in honor of the badass that she was. Sign me up for that one. Karina Longworth, thanks so much for joining me. I'm a longtime listener of your show. 
Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Um, your new series is called Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman, and it's really great and just immensely entertaining. Just this last episode I was listening today with the stories of John Ford's possible penis flashing. <laughs> <They're just different. laughs> oh, thank you. But you've said in the past that when you examine a subject for a show, um, you're interested in the following the subject story has been told this way, but why has it been told this way? Can you talk a little bit about how Polly Platt's story has been told to the world previously? Well, I think the important thing is that it hasn't really been told. Um, the only parts of it that have been told are the parts involving her being married to Peter Bogdanovich and him leaving her for Sybil Shepherd. And even the full extent to, as to which she was involved in the films that she made with Peter Bogdanovich hasn't been fully told. Um, you know, I think if most people have heard of her, maybe they've seen her credit on a film or maybe they remember her a little bit from something like Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, but they don't really know anything about her full life or the, the full scope of her career. Tell me a little bit how this came to be. I understand that Platt and Bogdanovich daughters gave you an unfinished memoir or somehow this came to you yeah um so she was working on her memoirs um during basically she kind of quasi retired in the 2000s and she died in 2011 so there was a period um you know basically after the year 2000 where she was working on this memoir and she was sort of unable to finish it, um, not just because she died in 2011. She had actually abandoned it before she died because she just started to kind of lose confidence that anybody would want to hear her story. And she was having troubles being as honest as she, she was a very, very brutally honest person, but she was having trouble being honest about some of the things that had happened to her in her career because she didn't want to necessarily reveal things about people that she still cared about. And so she was trying to navigate those those circumstances. Um, and she ended up, you know, not finishing the memoir. Um, the memoir is about 330 something pages and it cuts off kind of in the middle of an idea. And there's also, it's the first half of it, I would say is very detailed and really beautifully written. And then the second half is fairly unfinished. It feels like a first draft. So, um, you know, it was not in a state where it could just be published as is. Um, but her daughters really wanted to get it out there because they, they felt that their mom's story hadn't been told. And so um, I read it and I really wanted to, you know, get it out there as well. I mean, because the even if it's unfinished, the writing is incredible and the stories are so valuable. You know, this really is a treasure trove of, of untapped film history. Um, and so at first I thought about fleshing it out as a book and I, you know, the literary industry was not very receptive to it, um, based on the idea that nobody's ever heard of her. Um, and you know, so it's sort of a chicken and an egg because it's like, well, that's why you have to tell right. the story. Uh, luckily I have this podcast platform where I can do pretty much whatever I want. And so, um, I took the memoir and I spent about a year doing archival research and interviews, um, to, to flesh it out so that we can tell, you know, maybe not a hundred percent of the full story because she's not around to talk to, to ask questions about the things she wrote and didn't write. 
but certainly much closer to it than has ever been out there before. Not only is it a treasure trove of Hollywood stories, it's also such an important story of, of which there are so many, the invisible woman, the woman behind the man who does not get this credit. I mean, her films and TV series and contributions to film history resonate so much today. The thing is that Peter's side of the story is still out there. There happens to be a, another parallel podcast running about him um, called I'm Still Peter Bogdanovich. And I was listening to that. And to put it mildly, even though Polly's gone, he has a very hard time to be generous in regards to their collaboration. He just will not go there. Why do you think that is? Well, I haven't listened to that podcast, so I don't want to comment on anything specific he says. But um, I do know that he gave this interview to Vulture um, over a year ago. And and I think that a lot of people who knew Polly were really upset at the way he talked about her in that, where he um, was basically trying to downplay her contribution. And, and I talk about that in the first episode of my podcast, where he accused her of lying about what she said she did on his films. Um, Polly Platt had a lot of faults. And one of them was that she was almost incapable of, of, of not being a truth teller. And so it, though, the way that he sort of um, positions her in that way doesn't really ring true. As as for wh- far as why he doesn't want to share credit, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily unique to him, but I think that generationally they both grew up in a world in which a woman was supposed to help their husband's career. Certainly in the 1950s when Polly was a child and going into the 1960s, the idea was that like you were you and your husband were a partnership to help him. Um, and so that's, that was her point of view when she was working with him. She thought she, she understood that her contributions were invaluable, but she didn't fight for credit because she didn't expect it in the world that she lived in. Um, the issue is that the world changed, right. And they broke up and after they broke up, she felt very excluded by him. She mm-hmm. felt excluded in terms of credit And she felt excluded from this world of celebrity and sort of glamour that he entered into with Sybil, um, in which he was sort of given credit for being this creative genius and the auteur who was doing it all on his own. What are their daughter's relationship to their father today? They both have relationships with him. You know, I think that families are complicated. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just hearing your show and other people comment about um, her involvement, for example, in the last picture show where she actually, you know, found this book and how she completely uh, made the style of the movie and the makeup and all this. And he gives really very little credit. I was wondering what their comments about that were. Well, I think that's why they wanted to get their mom's side of the story out there. Let's talk a little bit about The Last Picture Show, um, how this movie is so important in the cultural conversation, in the landscape of Hollywood. Well, I think people have this idea of 1970s American Hollywood films, you know, this this period of, of the studio system broke down and there's these sort of outlaw auteurs who took over and and brought like a new kind of rawness and realism to storytelling and the way movies looked. And... The Last Picture Show is certainly part of that idea that people have. And um, in terms of the aesthetic of 70s Hollywood, I think there are really two movies that are responsible for the way that we think about things. Maybe three. Let's say it's three. Let's say it's Easy Rider, Five five Easy Pieces, and The Last Picture Show. Five Easy Pieces and The Last Picture Show were both 
art directed, production designed by the wives of the directors. So for Five Easy Pieces, it was Toby Rafelson, who was married to Bob Rafelson. And uh, for Last Picture Show, it was Polly. Um, and Polly had kind of a personal philosophy that she had developed over years of watching Hollywood movies and paying attention to the way people looked in them and the way rooms looked, where she she didn't understand why decisions were made to make things sort of aesthetic and glamorous that weren't true to the story. So she would watch, say, the Stanley Donnan film Charade and just be ripping her hair out because she didn't understand why Audrey Hepburn was wearing Givenchy when her character would not be able to afford Givenchy. And so she kind of made a personal vow that if she was given the opportunity, she was going to really wed the design of a film to the story so that you didn't have those kinds of disconnects. And she got her chance on The Last Picture Show for really the first time to bring this kind of stylized realism in. And, um, you know, she she was willing to, or she fought to do things like showing Sybil Shepherd with curlers in her hair, um, you know, like cr creating facades of a dying town where, you know, you there was like a faded Texaco, Texaco sign for a gas station. And she wasn't satisfied with the letters just being faded. She actually painted out one of the letters because she thought that would be more realistic for a dying town. Um, so it's not necessarily like Sybil, just show up. We'll, sh we'll shoot you like as you've woken up. It's doing little things to make sort of realism more real. And of course, there's the lore. This is the movie where Peter Bogdanovich um, had an, an affair with Sybil Shepherd, which you were referencing at the top of the show is sort of the story of, that became a big story in Polly Platt's life. One of the questions you asked is, why did she keep working on the movie while she knew and everyone knew that this was happening? Yeah, that, that's a question that I've had in my mind for, you know, 25 years since I kind of first learned about all of this. And, and not just why did she keep working on The Last Picture Show, but why did she work on two other films with Peter after they broke up? Um, and I tried to answer that question actually in episode four, which comes out next week. But in episode three, you know, in her memoir, she writes so beautifully and so powerfully about what she was going through emotionally at the time and the conflict she had where... You know, she was being, she felt publicly humiliated, but it would have been a greater humiliation to walk away from the film because she felt like it was just as much her movie as it was Peter's. And she felt like if she knew, you know, that if she walked away before the movie was done, she wouldn't get any credit at all. Um, if, she, if she had to be replaced on that movie, then, you know, her career would be over. So she had to stay and and last through this emotional and personal humiliation in order to hold on to something. But in regards to Hollywood history that we get through books and through different tellings, one thing seems pretty clear to me, and also the fact that I'm married to a screenwriter, the auteur theory is a freaking menace. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you say, I mean, there it really has quieted a lot of voices out there um, and you talk about that very interestingly about these big books that have been written about men in film can you talk a little bit about that yeah you know I mean the auteur theory is something that really on one level it's good because it's responsible for people thinking of Hollywood as a place where art gets made and not just commercial products 
And it's also, it played a big role in, in the formation of film societies in the 1960s and the very idea of film history being something on the level of art history or cultural history. But it's like we haven't evolved past the early 1960s in our thinking about these things. And so maybe you had to isolate directors as a way of saying these are not just industrial products. These are movie, these are works of art. But, you know, and, and certainly academia is, is ahead of the mainstream. And in academia, there's now a school of thought called multiple author theory, where you can talk about the contributions that other people make on a movie, whether it's a writer or uh, a production designer or an editor. And you can talk about how an editor would have a, a, a style that they bring to every film the way a director does. And so you can have a more multifaceted way of looking at things. But the mainstream press, it's like they haven't figured out a way to talk about movies in any other way besides for celebrity. And so you can obviously stars are celebrities. And then it's like there's room to have directors be a celebrity. And, you know, sometimes here and there, there's like a celebrity producer like Jason Blum or, um, you know, a celebrity screenwriter. But every other craft position on a movie, you know, there's people just don't know who these people are who are doing these things and they don't understand what the work is. And they don't understand, for instance, how somebody like Polly Platt can be credited only as a production designer, but she's actually changing the story. Right. She's making cre creative decisions in the process of trying to like figure out how the movie should look. Have you seen Shirley? I'm just curious. I haven't seen it yet. No, I really like Josephine Decker's movies, but I haven't seen that one I yet. I think you'd be very interested in the theme there also. But I'd like to ask you a few things about the show of, and you, if, that, if that's okay. Um, you reference your mom a lot when you in interviews and things, and that she really gave you a love of movies. So I became curious about about her was she in the industry or was she just a movie lover no she wasn't in the industry at all um she uh it's so funny when you said that I thought you were gonna say because the thing about my mom is she died when I was 11 and which is like you know sort of my foundational you know tragedy <laughs> and so I thought that you you were gonna talk about that and, and it because that that's the thing that I always think about when I think about my mom and I I, I I don't think about the fact that like she did. Uh, yeah, I mean, she she was really into movies. I didn't know that that was a weird thing because that's just the way I grew up. Um, but yeah, she wasn't in the industry. She was just, you know, a lady living in Los Angeles who um, I like shortly after I was born, Natalie Wood died and my mom had always been a huge Natalie Wood fan. And so I have these really, really early memories of my mom talking about what a tragedy it was that Natalie Wood was gone and, mm -hmm. and telling me when I was a young girl that I looked like Natalie Wood as a young girl. And, and my mom was like obsessed with James Dean and Warren Beatty. And so these people were just kind of like facets of my life. Like we had, as you mentioned earlier, we had Lauren Bacall's By Myself on the family bookshelf. We had, <laughs> we had Hitchcock Truffaut on the family bookshelf. We had Lana Wood's book about Natalie. Um, we had all these things were just alongside like Hemingway and, and John Le Carre books, you know? Wonderful. And so, yeah, and I just, and also my parents were like, they weren't that into contemporary films. Like they were more into, you know, watching old movies on TV and, they they never took me to see like Star Wars or anything like that. The only movies that they would take me to see were re-releases of Disney animated films. And then at home for a long time, all I was allowed to watch were sort of like classic 
children's films. So I watched, you know, The Wizard of Oz and Mary Poppins, but I never, I never saw movies that were coming out in the 80s until later. Right. So you were fully immersed in sort of classic Hollywood. Yeah. You were a film critic, but sometime, I think 2012 or something, you, you left LA Weekly. Um, it, and, and this is when the, the podcast really came. But why did you leave that side of the industry? I just got in burnt out. You know, when you're a critic, you're especially for a newspaper, you're expected to see every movie that comes out, which at that point, you know, was between eight and 15 movies a week. And you're expected to have, even if you don't write about all of them, you're expected to have an opinion about all of them. You're expected to go on radio shows and TV shows and, and be a pundit. And it was just too much for me because I, you know, there's maybe 30 new movies a year that I care about. Mm -hmm. And I was being forced to have an opinion about 30 movies a month, more than that. So um, it was just, yeah, it was too much for me. And I had never really, you know, gotten into this line of work because I cared about contemporary Hollywood. I had gone to graduate school to study classical Hollywood, to study the history of Hollywood. So I wanted to just try to find my way back to that. And it actually took me about a year and a half after I left the LA Weekly to start the podcast um, because I was trying a few other different things first. That's the thing about the podcast. That you can really feel your passion and your sort of true love for this. And I think it's so impressive how this grew and became so influential. I was just thinking of the, the really great Charles Manson series that you did that seems like it's become a definite source on Manson. And I, I kept hearing people referencing it when Tarantino's movie came out, that this was really, yeah. that the two of them were sort of in, intertwined. But of course, it's your research. Like, for example, I didn't know that there was a thing called a mental autopsy before learning about your Howard Hughes, you know, those type of things that you read. Well, it's a, it's psychological autopsy is what they called it. Yeah. So this is a thing that a psychologist named Raymond Fowler did. He was hired by Howard Hughes' estate um, to basically, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a biography of Howard Hughes' mental health. And so he was hired by the estate to a, a way of sort of protecting Howard Hughes' money after he died from various lawsuits. So I don't, I don't know that the... Um, the motives behind it were all that pure. <laughs> it's a fascinating document. And I was able to connect with uh, Raymond Fowler's widow, Sandy, who um, shared with me all of his files about Howard Hughes. Because after he was hired to do this in the late 70s and worked on it for several years, he kind of became obsessed with Hughes and he tried to write a musical about him and there was a lot of stuff. But yeah, that was that was just something where it was like I was looking for kind of any information about Howard Hughes that hadn't been tapped before. And this was something where, uh, you know, a brief summary of Fowler's research had been published in the magazine Psychology Today in the 1980s. But I was able to go through all of his files and and there's some really fascinating stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, it was just sort of a different way of, of looking at Howard Hughes and trying to figure out what was going on with him. Where do you start your research? Well, it depends on the subject matter. You know, obviously with the Polly Platt situation, having that memoir, that was not only where I started, but it's it's always kind of what you go back to because it, if the memoir is motivating the project, then you want to be true to the memoir and you want to be true to her voice. And so somebody might have like a great story that they're telling you, but it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. um, but usually what I do is um, for whatever the subject matter is, I try to figure out what are the most reputable books. And then I read those and I go through their bibliographies and I try to go to the sources that they used. 
And then I just kind of work backwards from there. Um, when it comes to something like the Howard Hughes project, where I didn't want to rely on any books written about Howard Hughes, I was trying to come at it for, by looking at books written about the, the other subjects of the, of the book, which were these women that he was involved with. But then I also did a lot of archival research, like um, you know tracing primary documents like the Raymond Fowler files, um, like going to the, um, the office of the Secretary of State of Texas, where thousands and thousands and thousands of files are kept that were collected during this um, multi-state fight over who was going to be able to tax Howard Hughes's estate. And weirdly, they were pulling files from that were related to his entire life, like telegrams from the 1930s oh, wow. and, and all of this stuff. So I spent a lot of time looking at that. I looked at two different publicists, three different publicists of his, like have their files in collections at different institutions. So I was able to go through all those things. Um, really, it's just, it's about um, casting as wide a net as possible and pulling everything in and then like sort of digging for gems. And you go deep. Is there a story or stories that have really sort of gotten to you personally on an emotional level? Well, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of them, you know, certainly right now, I feel like I have a really strong emotional connection to Polly and, and um, you know, it kind of went beyond, I think, some of the obvious things. I, I, I started to relate to her some of her like personality features and even some of her personality defects I sort of saw in myself. Um, and so to some extent, as I'm telling Polly's story, you know, I'm kind of also telling my own story. Well, I related to her. I relate to her listening to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think many women do. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to sort of your intention when you start a show that the story was told this way, but why was it told that way? What about today when you read interviews and portraits with women in Hollywood right now? Um, has there been progress in how we tell their stories? Are there women in Hollywood right now? <laughs> I feel like, Interesting. I feel like um, you know, when you're talking about like who gets to be on a magazine cover or something like that, like it doesn't, I just don't see, feel like there is a lot of journalism being done about women in Hollywood. Um, you know, maybe women in music, but I, I also just think that like the Hollywood journalism is absolutely broken. Um, because nobody has any, nobody who works in the industry has any incentive to tell the truth about anything because there's no publication that's going to find out the real truth and print it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all just very bad. <laughs> so no progress. <laughs> well, I, it's not even that there's no progress. I mean, I just think it's like, first of all, I mean, do you think that there are publications that care about women in Hollywood? I just don't, I don't see it. No, yours. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and even like putting aside the gender issue, I just don't think that there are, is really being, there's a lot of, you know, sort of hard hitting muckraking journalism being done about the industry. I see most publications are almost, it's almost like the 1930s again, where they're just happy to print a press release. But what about in terms about what the women in Hollywood have to go through? I mean, we've learned so many things through your shows about the toll that Hollywood took on women and what they were asked to do and not to do. Um, do you think that's changed? Um, well, you know, this, the sexual harassment stuff, the, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, all of that, like, it seemed like the floodgates were opening a couple years ago and then it's just kind of stopped. Um, like we're not talking about it anymore at all. 
Um, and of course there are other things to talk about in the world. Um, but, um, you know, I don't really know. I, I don't really know if how the extent to which things have changed. I think that, um, we've taken our eyes off the ball. Your husband is working, uh, you know, has done some of these huge franchises that you were referencing that you didn't get to see when you were little. <laughs> and you've been, re have you learned anything about Hollywood actually seeing it so up close now? You know, I think that I have a better understanding for how movies are actually made on a granular level. Um, and again, I think that's something that a lot of people who write about Hollywood, they don't, you know, uh, uh, I'll listen to like a podcast that's supposed to be about the film industry and, and the misunderstanding of the way movies are actually made is, is pretty shocking. But again, like there are no publications who are actually doing reporting about like, this is how these movies come together. So how would anybody know? What podcasts do you listen to? Um, I, I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts about movies anymore, but um, I mostly listen to um, podcasts about baseball and um I like the podcast Keep It, which is mm -hmm. about sort of que queer issues. And um, I like Who Weekly, which is a, like a funny celebrity podcast. And I like um, Night Call, which my friends uh, Molly Lambert, Tess Lynch, and Emily Yoshida do. But yeah, I, I kind of had to stop listening to most podcasts about movies because I just like wanted to throw my phone at the wall. <laughs> right. Um, and do you do you go to contemporary movies? Well, I used to when movie theaters were open. Yes, um, yeah, I would course. go. I would go like once a week. But I have to be honest that since movie theaters have closed, I haven't watched any new movies at all. Mm -hmm. um, I've only been watching movies for research and then sort of watching classic films that I had never seen before. I read a long time ago that I think you had an idea. I don't know if, how, if it came to fruition, but that you were thinking of writing women of easy riders and raging bulls. Um, is that something that's still happening? It was never happening. Um, I, I wrote a proposal for that book in 2012 and didn't sell it. And then, um, you know, the Polly Platt, Polly Platt was going to be one of the people I wanted to write about in that book. And then um, this project, you know, came to me and I've done it as a podcast and I would still write that book if anybody was interested in it, but I don't think that the book industry is interested in it. We're interested in it. Yeah. But, you know, writing a book is like, it's so much work for so little reward um, that I would never self-publish. It's not worth it at all. So the only reason, the only way I would ever write that book is if a major company, you know, gave me a contract to do it and was willing to support me over the five years or so that it would take to do the research and write it. Um, and I just, I don't see that happening. My, you know, my last book didn't sell very well. And so I'm not in a position of power. And I think this would be a hard sell because, you know, I mean, it, it is about women whose stories haven't been told. And so it, you have to go through this process of explaining to the publishing industry why they matter. And in a way you have to write the whole book for them to understand that just to get in the door. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, finally, you've really immersed yourself in Polly now and, and, and her voice is so clear. It feels so clear when listening to it. And, um, what's your impression of what she would think about what you're doing and about her story getting out there and finally getting some notoriety? Well, I think she would probably be very self-deprecating. I think she, she'd be like, what a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that there are so many people who are around her who are like, she's finally getting what she deserved. So that feels good. And, um, you know, I just like my goal, not my 
only goal, but, you know, one of the things that I really would love to do is, um, you know, here in America over the past few years, there's been this sort of reappraisal of the writer Eve Babbitts, who was sort of like a cult writer, you know, about about Hollywood and about the culture in the 70s and 80s. And she's become embraced by a generation of young women as this sort of forgotten badass. And I would love it if Polly Platt was considered the next Eve Babbitts of somebody who is re-embraced by young people who are like, wow, how come we never knew about this woman and her work and her wild life? Um, I would love it if people started wearing Polly Platt t-shirts and carrying around Polly Platt tote bags the way they do Eve Babbitts. Oh, I'd love that. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Karina, thank you so much for your time with me and, of course, for all your work that, you know, really um, means a lot. And, and, and I can't, I keep, I wait every week. Well, <laughs> yeah. thanks so much. Thank you so much to Karina Longworth. Don't miss this season of You Must Remember This podcast, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. And Longworth's Howard Hughes book that we reference is called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes, Hollywood. And thank you so much for listening. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others to find Pop Culture Confidential. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. See you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.